0: Welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records, with me, Rich Evans,
1: and me, Mark Walsh. This time, we'll be looking at the times they are a-changing. So, Rich, this was his third album, uh, released in January 1964, um, although it had been recorded um, at the end of 1963. How familiar with this record were you before we started listening to it again this time?
0: Well, this one, actually, I was pretty familiar with. Um, I remember this was a CD that I had. There there weren't many CDs in my house when I was kind of a a teenager. Most of them were were borrowed from the library and then found their way illicitly onto tape. But um, I'd actually bought this on CD and I listened to it an awful lot This really was my introduction I suppose to acoustic Dylan I'd already fallen in love with Highway 61 And this was This was my moment really I suppose When I really engaged with him as an acoustic balladeer I suppose would be a better way of describing it And so yeah as a as a Teenager um, this had a, a Huge impression on me I loved its Rawness I loved the, the impact That the songs had and the quality of the Lyrics and yeah what about you I mean uh, did you have a similar kind of story with this or was it was it one that you've kind of come to later?
1: Well it was one that I did pick up in the early days when I was first discovering Bob uh, just because obviously the title track is so famous and you want to find out uh, what it's all about but I think I was much more impressed by Freewheeling uh, back in the day and this one just sat on my shelf most of the time and I didn't really listen to it that much. I think probably because of the tone of it, I'm sure we're going to discuss this in a bit more detail but seemed to me at the time incredibly bleak, um, and i've got to say this time as well i i didn't have a different opinion about it
0: no i reckon you you're absolutely right about the bleakness. I think that in a in a weird way i suppose as a as a teenager with existentialist angst or probably just being a teenager without kind of overdoing it, I think the bleakness appealed to me um in a way, and I kind of identified with aspects of it i mean i know well doubtless talk about the civil rights aspects of of this as a record but I I think I I sort of almost identified more with the with the sort of tone and the the stripped down ness of it and um, and certainly on things like uh, North Country Blues I mean it's it's that that sort of evocation of of place I found really really interesting I felt I I kind of identified with something there in, in in a way that I maybe wasn't with some of the other music that I was listening to at the time
1: yeah, I think that's right. You really feel that on that song particularly, don't you? One of the things that really hit me this time was that there's a lot of, of resonance to where we are now in this record. It's It's, it's got that sense of time and place um, that puts you back in the mid-60s, early 60s. But it sort of struck me that you could almost listen to this record and hear somebody describing Trump's America. Obviously, you've got the whole Rust Belt stuff on uh, North Country Blues, but there's also that kind of, for the protest, but there's also the anger underneath it isn't there that's that's acknowledged, so even on a song like uh, only a porn in a game
0: what he does he doesn't he's not being massively simplistic is he with with the civil rights movement. he's not saying, "Oh look, the white people have just got it perfectly uh, and, they're, and, and, and it's just African Americans that are suffering, but he kind of flips it and he looks at the other side of of, of things and I think that's really quite important because. If you look at cinematic portrayals of the late 1950s or whatever, and it's it's like economists will say that America reached its kind of zenith, its economic peak, its, its sort of peak of consumerist happiness, I suppose, in, I think it was 1956. And so, I mean, this record is not very long after that. And so by rights, we should be seeing a, an America of I Love Lucy, but just in technicolour rather than in black and white. But as it is, this, I mean, even look, you look at the the cover on this, I mean, this looks like a Dust Bowl balladier Woody Guthrie kind of take on things. And it's it's certainly not looking at the type of America that Hollywood was was kind of portraying. And I think that's really important because this is, and, and I, I totally get where you're coming from in terms of the resonance that this has now, is the, or, or the Trump era America kind of thing, because it's that... It's like that silent majority. He's kind of remembering, I suppose, people that that didn't feature uh, necessarily in the news and the media and didn't really get songs written about them Um, and were never going to make the headlines. But we're still having a really kind of shit time of things, despite the fact that there was was supposed full employment and prosperity.
1: That's right. And, um, you know, you see that, don't you, on Ballad of Hollis Brown? Very, very uh, uh, explicitly. And... That's where the link to Guthrie stuff comes in, doesn't it? Because it's that kind of rural poverty, Uh, but white rural poverty as well, which was perhaps not the focus, obviously, of a lot of the protest around the time. But he's just flagging this still exists. This is still an issue.
0: Yeah, indeed. And I mean, and that, that kind of runs runs through a lot of this, but I, th- I think it, it feels quite, I mean, there's aspects that, that sound a bit Billy Bragg-esque to me on this as well, just in terms of it's, it's really very literate in terms of the way that it's presenting um, issues. It, so much of Bob Dylan's later stuff is veiled in mystery, but I think he's been really kind of quite obvious here. He's been quite didactic, really. And maybe that's why I liked it as a teenager. Maybe I just found it easier to understand. You know, he's not banging on about sheet metal memories of Cannery Row here. This is just, here's what I'm thinking and I'm going to lay it out in in almost like a parable kind of sense, isn't it? It's all very, there's definite stories. I mean, you you mentioned Hollis Brown here. There's a a narrative thread that just runs throughout that one. Same with Hattie Carroll, same with North Country Blues i ran a half marathon the other um weekend and i had my my phone i was listening to this album and north country blues was stuck on loop so i can tell you with absolutely and without equivocation that there is a narrative it doesn't get any more cheerful <laughs> with uh any number of listens but um this it, it goes it has a definite start you have characters introduced you have dilemmas you have development, and then you have that pretty crushing ending. But, I mean, it's it's accessible in that way, I suppose. It's like, here's an issue, here's a story about it. I mean, none of it's cheerful, is it?
1: And that's linking into what you said last week, isn't it, about freewheeling and uh, the fact that you liked Oxford Town. So, again, not a cheerful story. But the narrative quality comes through here a lot more than it did on that record, doesn't it?
0: Yes, indeed. And I think I think that's that's, that's probably one of the things that, that appeals to me about it that idea that yeah like you say you've got the the, the narrative thread but i mean it, it it is incredibly bleak and it's i think that the humor that that you, is definitely there on the first couple of bob dylan albums is just it just seems pretty absent um from this and i wonder if i mean i wonder if this is part of the reason why he ended up going electric i wonder if it just Felt more fun to be electric again to play with other people because you do wonder. I think there is a, there is a sense that he could have he could have be- this could have been how he became his his 1960s and and onwards. I mean he could have become who am I thinking of like Phil Oakes or someone like that who was just he was the protest singer right? he was a protest singer. I mean Bob Dylan could quite easily have been pigeonholed into 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 just being a protest singer really and and making this album over and over again really
1: yes definitely and we know now don't we as people at the time probably didn't that he was never going to do that he was always going to be moving on to something else it just wasn't quite clear what it was i I know we're jumping ahead here a little bit but the humor really does come back and the playfulness on another side doesn't it and it sort of reminds me a little bit of the beatles and the way on i think it's rubber soul when they suddenly start coming out with all these comedy songs and pastiches and and um You've even got a punchline, haven't you? In "Drive My Car," I think on that one. And I wonder if Dylan was also in that sort of space of, of trying to find a way of making things fresh for himself on on that record. And it's it's a it's it's a it's a departure from this album, even though we hadn't yet gone electric.
0: Yeah, I, I I think that's that's right. And I almost think that this, if you look at that folk movement of the early 1960s, really, this is probably the album they really wanted him to make. This is the one with the you've got the times there are changing, here's our call to arms, let's go out marching, here's a load of protest songs, here's a load of very obvious issues, let's sit down and listen to this and drink red wine with candles stuck in the empty bottles and all of that very bohemian <coughs> kind of stuff. And I think that this is probably the album that they wanted. And I think he was he was savvy enough and conscious enough to know that he could probably have just, like I say, he could have, he could have made this album and remade this album several times and they they would have been perfectly happy with that but he he wasn't he wasn't ever going to accept that he was never going to be the the sort of pawn in in anyone else's game i suppose
1: yeah absolutely um well let's get into that a little bit then rich because as you say the civil rights stuff is really obvious here isn't it and, and the protest songs more more so even than on freewheeling. wheeling and i guess there's always been this sort of suggestion that perhaps he was he was riding that wave in the way you've sort of suggested there that you know this was something that he knew would go down well he was he was he was pandering to the audience in a way but in a way that was quite smart because he knew it would get him to where he wanted to be but how far along that road do you go do you do you buy any of that
0: I think I do and I don't think any less of him because he's an artist obviously and he's an incredible genius but I think if you wanted to pick the hot topic of the time you're going to pick civil rights aren't you and I think he Mm -hmm. rode the coattails of that to some degree massive amounts of media attention very much a sort of just cause and so of course people were going to go along with this I mean I think Bob Dylan wanted to be a rock and roll star I think he wanted to be that figure that was right there at the top of the tree and I suppose this was a this was a way of moving I mean he wasn't moving from obscurity he was really pretty well known at this this time within music circles but I think this is another it's another aspect of his art really isn't it this is a way of of him being able to gain more media attention and if he's create, i think his his thoughts probably if i dare to try and imagine what he was thinking would that if he could make enough of a stir then he'd probably be given the the sort of freedom by the record company to 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 go off in in other directions and to explore other avenues and so I think that's why he, he becomes this very sort of almost dedicated, quite straight-laced almost seemingly folk singer on this. He's your archetypal folk singer on this album. But I think that he's playing the part. I don't necessarily think that's him. What do you reckon?
1: Very interesting one, isn't it? If you listen to the people at the time, they say, don't they, that as in so many other aspects of his art, he was being a bit of a magpie and, and picking things up from other people. So he was. there's no doubt that he was involved in that kind of scene of... Um, protest and he, he participated didn't he i mean he did go down to the south at least on one occasion and was participating in these uh, benefit uh, gigs and so on in fact didn't he go on a road trip after this record where he, they were driving around all these little towns and, and doing performances yeah, he, and things like that
0: but i think the thing is he he moved so quick i mean i don't mean that he was driving fast necessarily at that point <laughs> in time but i mean he 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 moved so quickly in the 60s obviously as, as is well documented that he i mean because joan byers famously said that he hardly ever went on any marches Um, and so that was clearly only a a pretty small part of his his kind of 1960s experience. I think he certainly went to these places and he saw them and I think because he was so notable at the time that's why he's so uh, and and of course wrote these great anthems I think that's why he's so associated with this but to the extent to which he was kind of a card carrying member of that um, sort of fraternity I'm I'm not entirely sure.
1: Yeah it's a little bit like Woody Guthrie I suppose in a way isn't it? I mean he, he was obviously much more politicised for a longer time, but he wasn't necessarily the person who'd turn up and be carrying a placard at the front of the march all the time. Um, It's a different kind of thing, isn't it? But yeah, it's interesting. Let's let's look at some of the songs then. Um, I think this idea that he perhaps wasn't fully engaged with all the issues, I wonder whether that ties into his attention to detail on some of these songs, because it's been reported quite a lot, hasn't it, that some of the facts in his songs aren't necessarily 100% accurate. And I think the, the really striking one on this one is... The lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, which for my money is is standout song on the album, and it's it's just a a genuine, genuinely powerful uh, performance, even now.
0: But he does play a bit fast and loose with the facts, doesn't he? Yeah, there's a there's um, a great what what exactly? Because I mean, I I totally agree. I think that this is. I mean, it's very tuneful, isn't it? This, which I think is one of the way one of the reasons why, in in terms of the protest stuff on this, it's a, a fantastic performance. It's very memorable, but very tuneful as well. But what remind me? What what? Where does he? Where does he go wrong, or where does he uh, embellish? Well,
1: there's actually a great website uh, that goes into this, which we can link to, I think, um, below the line, as they say. Um, but it's things like the perpetrator wasn't. Uh, charged for first-degree murder. The trial, by all accounts, was was pretty fair. I think was it Maryland that was the prosecuting authority. I can't remember, but they they really went to town. They got their best people on the job. They had the evidence laid out very clearly. You know all this sort of stuff. So uh, you know he didn't come out on bail straight away. You know, and um, he wasn't charged, I think, for murder at that time because he'd only been charged okay. for assault. So, and even so, he'd been held overnight and things like this. So, the stories, the stories. Got the the hard kernel of truth, which you know it hangs its hat on, very effectively. But some of the details are changed, and there was talk at the time about him being sued. I don't think he ever was. Yeah, little things like that, which were just you know you could say poetic license, or you could say perhaps he just didn't know the facts of the case and and ad libbed as he was going along.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I wonder. It's the uh, it's the never letting the truth get in the way of a great story um, style of songwriting, I suppose. But I mean this podcast is entitled Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. I mean, if we're, if we're thinking about the immortal bard and his, um his attitude towards the truth, he was certainly uh, not beyond bending the truth either. And so it's, it's, it's a very artistic thing, isn't it really? I mean, it, it's it, Bob Dylan is not the first and he certainly won't be the last to kind of, I suppose if you're trying to make a stir, if you're trying to make a provoke a reaction in the listener, then in a couple of minutes, on Bale was out walking and you know reacted to his deed with a shrug of the shoulders and all of that kind of stuff. That's far better to say. Uh, well, the, the the perpetrator got a fair trial. And uh, I mean, far as I don't know how you rhyme <laughs> that, but. Um, and uh, yes, the, the, the Maryland uh, justice system was found uh, not wanting too much kind of thing. I mean, that, that just wouldn't make a story, would it? But it's it's interesting, I think, that that he has chosen to do that because clearly he's got an agenda then, hasn't he? Clearly this is, right, okay, I'm going to make this this story, I'm going to pluck out of the, uh, the press and I'm going to put a slant on it that makes it a civil rights song and, and therefore fits in with everything else.
1: Yeah, and I buy that. And it's also interesting, isn't it, if you think about the the murder ballads, the traditional songs, even the kind of um, union songs, even when Bob Dylan was singing those sorts of songs in the early 60s, the eyewitnesses perhaps would have passed away in the era before mass communications, probably not that many people knew the full facts anyway. And so these songs become the facts, even though they're they're they may be quite different from what actually happened. And one of the points made on the, the website uh, is that, uh, you know, with Hattie Carroll, we're now in that space where the song is the the, the, the story for, for most people. Very, very few people remember it. Even fewer will ever want to go and look up the facts, except as a, you know, a curiosity, like I, yeah. like I did in, in researching, researching this. Um, So the song's power and yours and what it represents is more important in a way than the actual facts. But I get that. But I I wasn't quite satisfied, I don't think, thinking about it and listening to it this time, because, of course, it's a topical song, isn't it? You're talking about a real tragedy with real people affected. um, And, you know, I mean, actually, as I say, it was almost sued. It was a it was a real criminal case. I don't it sits a little bit uncomfortably with me now that he did play that fast and loose with it. But I don't know. What do you think, Rich?
0: Well, I mean, I get what you're saying with this one. And I think that he's his fast and loose with the truth. I mean, the, and, and his use of, of, of topical stuff, he doesn't really, I mean, you might shout me down and I might be wrong here, but to my mind, he doesn't really ever get quite this topical again. It's his early kind of folk stuff where he's really... Um, I mentioned previously the idea of the almanac singers, which Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, in the sort of Second World War era, really used to sing the headlines. Effectively, very, very topical songs. Um, I mean, he does on on stuff like Hurricane. I suppose, in fairness, so if you go to Desire, obviously, That's the one, isn't it? Not so many songs on on one album, certainly. That and, and the trouble with topical songs is that. They age, don't they? And um, and I think that this is this is something that we as listeners understand only when we've listened to a lot of material. But if you put out something that's incredibly topical and incredibly on the money, the meaning can change. I mean, the meaning. Look at "Born in the USA" by Springsteen, for example. I mean, that's been co-opted by the the outright almost as being this kind of big drum banging, flag waving patriotic anthem because of the the chorus. You listen to the lyrics. A very problematic uh, relationship with with the with the country, and and so as a result of that, meanings of, of songs will change when you put them out into the public eye, and certainly over time, meanings will change also. So I think that the the idea of him him being such a topical singer, I, I think that that's why one of the reasons maybe why he moved away from from being so sort of overt. I mean, I'm not saying that these songs are obvious, but there's there's a very definite sense of here's a message. I'm going to keep this message going through. Whereas everything then tends to be far more kind of veiled in, 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 in mystique, really, and mystery.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I guess the one thing that leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth is that he wasn't singing this song as a, you know, someone on the stump um, trying to drum up support. And he wasn't, uh, you know, a, a broadsheet writer trying to um, get the message across to people. He was a, He was a pop singer making a very good living out of this and i think that's where it just starts to slide into something a little bit more distasteful but i take your point and the power of the song i think certainly more than counterbalances all of that but yeah speaking of the performance as i said before i always gravitated more towards freewheeling when i was younger than this one and i know you were the other way but having listened to both of them now in a lot of depth in the last couple of weeks i was wondering whether there's much evidence that he's matured as a songwriter and as a performer between freewheeling and this for me i although i've said already that i find this a very bleak and difficult listen at times i think there's no doubt that the performances are stronger but what do you think rich
0: i agree i think they've got more i mean i think that they're they're certainly more raw and i do think that their performances are stronger i think there's more depth to them he was clearly a great performer from the very start of his recorded career, but I think that these are better. I don't know whether there's a little bit more kind of prominence given to recording of the guitar and recording of the harmonica. I wonder if it's, I'm not saying balance better, because obviously they were, the producers at the time knew perfectly well how to record acoustic instruments. It was when they started recording electric bands that the problems kind of started a little bit because it was so new. But I mean, recording acoustic stuff was, was, was something they were very familiar with. I think they've done the guitars better on this i think they've given them a bit more prominence i think some of it might be coming down to what he's listening to because i listen to like something like the ballad of hollis brown and i think there's a lot of delta blue stuff in there there's a bit of robert johnson in there i think and and i think that he's he's what he's got on, on this on this album is is maybe he knows that he can get away with stripping everything back completely to kind of basics and that's exactly what he's doing here. I mean, you look at Hollis Brown. I love Hollis Brown, but it is so bleak. And But the guitar and the performance is perfect because it's just kind of monotone. It just mirrors the life of this poor sharecropper. But then it's quite varied performances as well. We've already mentioned Hattie Carroll. And I mean, that that is an astonishing performance. I also like Boots of Spanish Leather, though. I mean, it's very kind of, it's very paired back, isn't it? But I think it's... It's done in a very pretty kind of fashion. What are your thoughts then? Do you think? Do you think this? I mean, yeah, obviously this is a better, better set of performances. But why do you think that is?
1: I think it's it's it, it's interesting. I, I agree with pretty much all of what you've said there. I, I think the other thing I that I, I really picked up on this time was that on his more personal songs and, and, and the, the anti-love songs as for the so-called boots of spanish leather i suppose being being one of them i did think this time that but one too many mornings stood out i mean obviously not a not an obscure song by any means but i do i do feel that it's sometimes overshadowed by boots of spanish leather and also by don't think twice i, I would i would imagine don't think twice is probably a more celebrated song overall although i could be wrong about that um, but for me this time that was the one out of the three that really stood out and both as a performance it's so so weary and touching at the same time but also just as a song I think it works a lot better than the other two yeah yeah spoke I mean, about that... don't think twice last time so listening to them all again this time I, I did think that one too many mornings stands out as the best of those three more personal anti-love songs if you want to call them that though I know it's not exactly a, an obscure song it's had a great deal of praise but I do think that Probably it's been in the shadow of Boots of Spanish Leather and Don't Think Twice uh, over the years. Maybe that's in my head. I don't know. But at this time, I certainly thought that one stood out. It's such a, 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 a warm and weary, and touching performance. And I think it works as a as a as a song. I think the emotion rings truer to me now.
0: But what did you think, Rich? Yeah, I mean, I I think One Too Many Mornings is actually quite. It's very versatile i mean i love the version they do of it on on hard rain i think that that sheds it in an entirely different light and i think i I think you're right of those the three um sort of anti love songs as it were i think that one's very strong i i do like i say i do really like boots of spanish leather i think it's i mean it's well documented isn't it the fact that he was supposedly lovesick and pining for his girlfriend who was overseas if various accounts that were to be believed then he he kind of he was he was pining and lovesick when when it suited him and then at other times uh, slightly (laughs) less pining and lovesick but there we go yeah i mean it's i do think though that it's a uh i i I do think that's that's a a, a kind of standout song but what i would also say in terms of i mean if if i'm going to go i'm going to kind of segue here into some highlights and things like that I'd read a book about Bob Dylan. It was the, uh, oh God, the 1972 Anthony, I forget his surname, a very famous sort of biography of Dylan. I'd read that. I'd listened to highway 61 and kind of came to this. I didn't know that much about Bob Dylan uh, uh, really other than that book. And for, for whatever reason, I kind of just assumed that he'd been writing a lot of these songs almost as a kind of just a coffeehouse kind of but I didn't realise that he was quite as famous, I don't think, as he was when I first listened to this record. And it's what's bizarre, I mean, I think that the certainly a song like North Country Blues works in many different guises because when I was a kid, I used to go visit my, my grandmother in Wales, in South Wales, um, on the edge of the coal fields and that was that for me I could well imagine my grandmother looking out of her window at the kind of shut down open cast mining and the, the kind of ravaged landscape and everything like that having exactly that kind of experience and for whatever reason it made I, I kind of identified with it on 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 that kind of level, I think. And I think it's interesting that he was he was I mean he was pretty much a folk superstar, wasn't he, at this point in time? Whereas I thought he was kind of I think as a teenager that he was some kind of plucky little underdog that had just penned a few very arresting tunes. So it just shows you 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 go back to it then and listen <laughs> listen to it with fresh ears, almost, or, or certainly having a little bit more context. And it's I mean, it's still quite remarkable how young he was when he did this.
1: It's a real standout song. Um, Actually, a few months ago, uh, I drove my family over to the other side of uh, my hometown, which is in North Staffordshire, and um, went to see my grandfather's old house. And um, I completely forgotten there's that you can see the um, whatever they call it, those great big wheels for the mines um, still standing there as some kind of heritage marker. Um, and then behind his house, you've got the, the what are now like pretty hills, but with the slide heaps previously that's just been uh, grassed over. And yeah, you know, it, it's true. It, it does very much evoke that. The other thing that I I, I find really Striking about that song is that he adopts the the female's persona in it, uh, which he also does on House of a Rising Sun, which most other male singers don't do. do they they always switch it round, and, um, and I think he does that very effectively on this one too. um And you really believe him, don't you?
0: Yeah, I agree. And I don't even know when I was a kid whether I kind of picked up on that, but certainly you, you think listening to it now, it, it's it's absolutely believable. It's absolutely kind of he sings it with such conviction and. And it's so kind of sensitive as well. I mean it's 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 looking at that particular angle. It's not so much the loss of the kind of masculine, here's my job, I've been working in the mine or whatever, but it's the it's the kind of knock-on effect that it's had on on the community, on the wider community. And I mean, going back to what you said earlier, that's a song for Rust Belt America now, isn't it? That's a song for the kind of um communities that have been ravaged by loss of jobs and kind of uh, exportation of jobs and, and and all of the other the problems that beset them they, they it's interesting that they were very much in place right back then in 1963
1: 1964 kind of thing definitely um, and and thinking about highlights uh, as i said already i think hattie carol really does stand out um, Thinking a bit more about lowlights, I I find it really hard on this album to think of any because they are. It is. I think it's a much more cohesive record than either of his previous two. And as we've sort of touched on, the performances are at least as strong, and the songwriting, on average, is stronger. Although you can't can't exactly say that he was a slouch on freewheeling, can you? But I think the the average song on this is probably superior. But I do have a bit of a problem with. we've got on our side. I think it's the least arresting performance uh, on the album by some distance. A lot of Bob Dylan songs are long and, and monotonous if you want to look at it that way. But I think for Bob Dylan fans, there's always enough for, in his styling, in his phrasing, and of course in the images he creates or the narrative that he, 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 he creates that, that keeps you going. I mean, obviously, Desolation Road, the, the, the prime example of that. But for this one, I just find it a dirge. Um, the performance is I think relatively lackluster, even and the lyrics i think okay we we get the message in the first couple of verses. Do we need to go through every single conflict in american history so i i, I find it I find it very very, very weird and i I almost kind of wonder, was he entirely serious when he he wrote this song he, he 's capable of capturing sentiments like that in in a line, as we know, and he's he 's dwelt on it for seven minutes. But then he's also thrown this curveball in in the middle where all of a sudden he starts talking about Judas Iscariot. <laughs> and, um, then he doesn't, he doesn't really develop that point. He's just bent onto the Russians. And I, I, I wonder if he had a little chuckle to himself when he threw that in there, uh, you know, uh, with no other context. Even that wasn't an original thought, of course. I mean, this is, you know, a, a, a well-established um, theological issue. But I just wondered, was he really serious when he wrote that song? The the one thing that makes me think perhaps he was is that he did play it a lot afterwards uh, for many years. But uh, what do you think, Rich?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say he 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 did play it a lot, didn't he? It, it became like one of the standouts for his set on all of those. Um, even even the uh, like the the Albert Hall stuff where you've got the acoustic set and then you've got the electric set. I think from memory that features on there. I I mean it's it's a strange song. Because I remember going back to the Welsh connection here. um, I remember once seeing a, a Welsh male voice choir perform it. And they performed it, but they only did the first three verses. And as far as I could make out, they did it in a completely non-ironic sense i.e. with God on our side became like a like a well it became like a hymn kind of thing and and so it's another sort of example of how I think it depends on context don't you if you're listening to this and thinking oh look he's being uh he's being ironic or he's being sarcastic or whatever then that that completely sort of changes your interpretation of it but I don't. Know. I mean, it does go on, and it is quite dirge-like. I've got a bit of a soft spot for it, I suppose, largely because when I think of it, I tend to think of that performance. I don't tend to think of the Bob Dylan performance. I tend to think of uh, mm. of, of, of the power that that however many hundred people singing together kind of gave that song. But they steered clear of Judas Iscariot, and they only did <laughs> the first three verses. <laughs> <laughs> so what do I know? Uh, yeah, the other
1: line in there that's that's unsettling or surprising is the one about the germans being friends now isn't it um after the holocaust which i suppose again is, is a bit more of a suggestion you know maybe i'm totally off piste and he wasn't really serious but it just i, I just don't really get why he, he he went on so long in it because it i, I think there's kind of as two halves to it for me There's was was the kind of litany of all the the battles and then there's the it ends with that zinger about the Germans and then you've got Judas. Yeah. And then, then there's a whole, I always think, okay, we're near the end now. But no, there's, a, there's been an incredibly long sequence of verses about the Russians in World War Three, and I, I can't really get on board with it.
0: No, I, I think, I mean, he, he overdoes it, doesn't he? He over it. And uh, I wonder if at this stage in his career, he's probably hitting the point where anyone producing him is probably thinking, well, do you know what? like. He's been incredibly successful with this previous album let's let's just indulge him. let him go with this I mean I think even even at this early stage in his career, it'd probably have taken quite a brave producer to say let's let's cut a few of these verses bob this is uh you know <laughs> we, we get the idea here I mean. Because, yeah, you're right. Some of the conflicts are pretty obvious. And then some of them, I mean, I love some of the lines. You don't count the dead when God's on your side. You never ask questions when God's on your Those are brilliant. And then I suppose that the Spanish-American stuff, and that, I mean, that, that's maybe not adding an enormous amount to it. I, I I don't want to belittle any conflicts, obviously. But, yeah, we, we get the idea, don't we? We've, we've, we've hit that point uh, <laughs> sort of three minutes in, whereas uh, like seven minutes later or whatever it was becomes becomes a little bit much probably
1: i'm not i'm not sure but perhaps also this works better for an american audience um i mean where religiosity is more embedded in the kind of public domain whereas i suppose here it's probably more of a private uh, thing and when it's in the public realm it's a more performative thing rather than a uh, you know a kind of a deep-seated acceptance that we all buy into this so possibly there's something of that going on as well um
0: yeah no i think but- that I think that might well be the case that there was a, I know there was a drop off in sort of religious um, kind of church going and stuff like that in this country. I'm not sure in, in the early sixties, it was probably still reasonably healthy, but I don't think that the song like that would have had the same impact in the UK, for example, as it probably would have done, in middle america i think i mean religion was still very much flourishing and to the fore wasn't it and so i think maybe maybe we misread it maybe that at the time was really quite an anti-authority stance or kind of like very anti-society it's it's difficult isn't it to 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 know how but but then and, and that again though that might well explain why he played it as much as he did maybe it did provoke quite a reaction in a way that we probably just don't understand now
1: very possibly and uh I'm, I'm i'm certainly to accept i might just be totally wrong on this and many other things but um speaking of that it just made me smile i was listening to music from big pink uh, earlier this week and one of the things i forget who it was one of the band members was, would it have been manuel or danko said that when they'd been in the, the basement with dylan and he was playing this song um that they covered on that uh, tears of rage uh, it's the one I'm thinking of, I think. And there's a line in it where it says, uh, now the heart is filled with gold as if it were a purse. And they said, uh, you know, you're sort of sitting there thinking, well, what on earth does that mean? But it's Dylan. You don't, you don't question it. You just get on <laughs> with it. So there might have been a bit of that even, even then. But
0: yeah, Rich, just, do, do you have a low light on this record? Um, well, I, to be honest with you, I, I think that this is a very consistently good record. I'm not massively keen on Restless Farewell, but the one that I was never that fond of was actually when the ship comes in. I always used to think that was just sort of, it was just a pretty little ditty, I suppose, almost. But I am I, I think reflecting on it now, and I know I won't be the first person to suggest this, but it as it gets later on, um, the time will come when they'll meet all your demands and things like that. I think it's it's very, it's, quite probably metaphorical for him isn't it okay it's this idea you know you may tell me all of this stuff now but sooner or later I'm going to prove you wrong I'm going to be the uh the person that you uh that, that I always knew that I would be or the, the the star that I always knew I would be and I wonder if I wonder if it's a lot more barbed than I'd originally thought so I think maybe I'd uh, I'd kind of undersold that one um in the old days when I've been listening to this what do you reckon
1: Interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it like that at all. I'd always seen it as a, you know, almost a wish fulfillment for the protest movement. Um, and it, it, I'll tell you one thing: after after certain electoral results, it certainly is a balm to listen to that and feel, um, you know, something something else is possible. But uh, yeah, I take your point. And and the other thing about that for me is that. I, I i heard it back in the day and and, and thought it was all right as, as i say i've listened to it subsequently and and it has some power but there was a billy brad version of it which i heard several years ago now at one of these um uh tribute celebration concerts which was just astonishing and i i do hear that in the back of my mind um when i hear it and 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 uh, it, it sort of gains a bit more power from that i think for me
0: yeah i think i think that you certainly see the kind of defiance don't you the defiant element of that song really comes through when when you when you see it performed in that way and uh, yeah so i think like i say i might have i might not have given it as much credit as i probably should have done previously but um we're probably we're probably hitting around about the time to wrap up here um so i i don't know i mean what what, what are your kind of last thoughts on on this record last thoughts on the times there are changing if um if you have any what are you thinking
1: yeah well i think now having listened to it again that objectively it is his best early album i probably would have said that freewheeling was my favorite previously but Now that I've taken the time to break through my reticence around the bleakness, I think, as I said before, that the average song on here is clearly superior and the performances are are so strong. So I do, I do, I do think that now. But it also occurred to me that actually maybe this is his least typical album just because the tone is so consistent throughout. And that might be what makes it stronger um, because it does work as an album in a way that I think Three-Wheeling probably doesn't. And even some of his even more celebrated albums later, perhaps that consistency of tone isn't always apparent. Although we'll see if I still think that later. I mean, just thinking of it now, I mean, John Wesley Harding probably does work in that way. But certainly his his electric albums that we're coming to are a lot less even, I think. But how about you, Rich?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I... I love this album. I would be, I mean, if there were parallel paths and if Bob Dylan had, had maybe not gone off on, on his other tangent, but had kind of kept going in the way that he was on this album. I mean, I'd have been fascinated to see what he would have become, but I mean, we did talk uh, previously about the, kind of Hank Williams high lonesome sort of um, what's the word, like almost yodel kind of sound. And we said that we thought we only, he only used that on the uh, the first album, but I'd forgotten he kicks off um, another side of Bob Dylan with the, what the, I really want to do, isn't it? It's that one, um, hmm. which of course has that as well, which we said previously, we equated that with like a sense of fun and kind of like irreverence and sort of rebellion and whatever. And, I think it's quite telling that that's the first song that he chooses to have on the next album afterwards, mm. because it's, it's a distinct gear change, isn't it? It's a, it's a case of, okay, yeah. I'm not that person now. I'm not doing Hollis Brown. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a long way from there, isn't it? Um, do you know, that's one of the things that really annoys me about some of the commentary on Bob Dylan, um, there's that great book on the Beatles. Is Ian MacDonald? Um, a revolution in uh, the Head, That one. Revolution in the Head, Yeah. And, and he, well, at one point he talks about the evolution from "Love Me Do" to I think it's "I Am the War or something, and he says no other artist has such a a, a leap in um, uh, what's the word scope as as the Beatles demonstrate here within the space of about five years or whatever it was. And he's right, of course. But, but in his in his footnote he he says, oh well, Bob Dylan did from his first album to "Like a Rolling Stone." You know, he um, he 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 was only really interested in it from the kind of songwriting point of view, not the not the production point of view and all the rest of it. And, and he's right, but the thing is, even before you get to the electric stuff, that that range, as you just said, from Hollis Brown to what um, I really want to do, is astonishing. I mean, is it equaled anywhere else? I, I don't know.
0: No, I think I mean it runs it runs the entire gamut, doesn't it, of what we now. We'd call americana i mean you've got acoustic you've got finger picking you've got blues slide you've got high yodel you've got farcical nonsense i mean let's face it you've got <laughs> yeah, protest, yeah. you've got um an ancient sort of references to ancient tradition it's all there it's just that sonically i suppose it probably doesn't sound as radical a shift as what the beatles were doing and there's what he
1: would do subsequently
0: yeah what he would do subsequently i mean it would have been very interesting i think if if george martin had produced bob dylan for the sake of argument i mean i don't quite know how that would have happened but i think it would, uh, <laughs> if you had someone that was quite as instrumental just as a production engineer kind of thing with with bob dylan would would he maybe have sonically kind of hit those heights earlier i don't know
1: yeah i mean the later history of the 70s and the 80s sort of suggests probably not doesn't it um i mean he's he he hasn't worked very well with celebrated producers in in most of his career I mean in terms of the cleanness of the sound this is probably as good as it gets as you you mentioned earlier but yeah an interesting thought but it it, it sounds very much like we're we're ready to crack on with another side next time doesn't it I'm really looking forward to getting into that again now
0: absolutely so uh, yeah I mean thank you for joining us on Bob Dylan American Shakespeare for more information please follow us uh, and look for us on Twitter You can find us, search at Dylan American, and join us next time for another side of Bob Dylan.